Hi, and welcome to the Digital Health Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Sabolsky. This is a regular panel discussion held with the brightest minds in the healthcare industry. We host collaborative conversations from all physicians, patients, scientists, creatives, and executives devoting their efforts to putting the care back into healthcare. We cover it all from delivery pharmaceutical life science, digital health, mental health, retail health, and anything anyone's doing with an innovative intent in the market. Stay tuned for a special episode of the Digital Health Roundtable. Hi, and welcome to the Digital Health Roundtable. I am your host, Matt Sabolsky. I've got three really important guests today, and the topic is something that's been on my mind, especially past COVID, and being a steward of digital health and how it impacts everything in the world, and clinicians, patients, uh, including employees and families and communities. Uh, I'm curious lately about the modern workforce, women, children, how HR interacts in this new world post-COVID, especially with engagement. There are impacts, there are reverberations. Before I intro the guests, I want to ask them each to introduce themselves, and I want to ask them a poignant question. How are the children? But before we get there, I want to introduce the guests and have them introduce themselves. I want to start out with Linda Craig. Linda, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background and what we're doing here today. And we'll move on then to Deb and to Ron. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I'm Linda Crabe. I'm the founder and CEO of Loristry. Uh, my clinical background includes work as a neonatal and pediatric intensive care registered nurse, um, where I had the privilege of working closely with families and children with prematurity, genetic and rare diseases, and many conditions that impact uh, newborn and early child development. Um, I have a bachelor's degree from Mount Holyoke College in art history and design, which has been very helpful in building the company. And um, I completed my MBA in healthcare at the Yale School of Management, where the first idea came to me about Loristry and where the idea won the Henry McCants Entrepreneurial Award in 2010. Um, after business school, I spent nearly a decade working in healthcare consulting uh, with a primary focus on health systems redesign, process design, quality and safety and patient experience. Um, first, uh, I worked as the national practice leader at Deloitte uh, and had the opportunity to work with many of the world's leading children's hospitals, both in the U.S. and abroad. And I spent some time as a senior vice president of global consulting for a children's hospital architecture firm, which is now part of Canon Design. Um, just prior to launching Loristry, I had the privilege of working under the leadership of Tim Ryan at PwC, where I was the Northeast U.S. Healthcare Client Relationship Executive. Um, I'm delighted to have you here, and you and I have known each other for a while, so it's good to be in contact again. Thank you, Matt. Deb, to you. Great. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm Deb Hicks, and I've spent the bulk of my career in the human resource uh, profession the last two decades heading up human resources for organizations such as Harvard Medical School, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. In that role, um, I've had the opportunity to see an evolving time in benefits. So I'm really excited to be here and I'm currently a leadership coach, advisor, and consultant and thrilled to be here, Matt. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. You're a real star and I look forward to your perspective later 
Ron, introduce yourself. Thanks, Matt. Ron Fontanetta. I'm an independent consultant for many years. I uh, supported the leadership team at one of the world's largest international consulting firms uh, that focused on uh, human resources with a particular focus on healthcare consulting for large employers and have developed a range of strategies and responses to the many issues that we've confronted over, over the recent years. Well, I'm pleased to have all three of you here. Ron, thank you for introducing yourself. I'm going to kick this back to Linda really quick. And I'm going to ask you two questions, Linda, that we talked about in our pre-call. How are the children and how are the parents? I'm so glad that you asked me about both because, you know, we can't really understand or care for one without the other. Um, the most important person in a parent's life is their baby and vice versa. And any stress that they experience is going to impact the environment for their child. Um, we're seeing nationally older children in crisis. Um, that doesn't happen overnight. And we need to do a much better job paying attention in the early years. And I'm going to pivot back to um, Ron and Deb here. Uh, Deb, I think I'm just going to pivot to you. I've got a question for you. Uh, there is a new and evolving relationship with workers after COVID-19. Um, we've talked about the great resignation. Uh, we've gone through a period of the great renegotiation. Maybe we're still in it. And now we're seeing these wild layoffs, Meta, Twitter. Um, it's a bloodbath out there. There's a lot of people who have friends who are now unemployed. How is this relationship evolving? Well, it's a great question, Matt. And, you know, first, I always like to say when people ask me, you know, post-COVID, post-COVID, some of the issues that we are dealing with existed and were very present pre-COVID. Um, but I think COVID truly opened a lens and put a spotlight on people's lives and how organizations actually handled that COVID period became pivotal. And there was wonderful opportunity in that too. There were ways for leaders to connect in different ways with employees. Um, there were ways for positive things to happen to show the humanity. You didn't have to hide the fact that you had two kids at home or a dog sitting on your lap when you were on Zoom during COVID. Your life <laughs> became real. But then again, you know, we, we do that. And now post-COVID, it's like this hybrid and we're back to the ways we used to be um, sometimes. So we want to bring it back. Or I heard recently, I love this one, where someone said, you know, she was trying to tell everybody, come back to work and it was a CEO, come back to work. It's great being back here. It's great. And she's doing that on a Zoom call um, from her <laughs> house. Um, and so for me, Matt, you know, there's a lot we can talk about, but what's happening, it has always been and is now more than ever about trust and the trust between the employer and the employees and showing a deep understanding of what employees are grappling with. And on top of that, it is a multi-dimensional, culturally diverse um, organization across age and generations. It is the most complex yet exciting time and it requires um, solutions and ideas to that are different than we've ever used before. And I think the hardest thing for organizations, and I'll speak for myself, is that the leaders are really not, no longer in charge. There is high expectation of the employees in this new world. 
And we need to change from, you know, uh, the employer, the employee to the partnership for the good of the organization and the good of the people and their families within it. Um, it is devastating to see what's happening in some of these exits. Um, and it's going to leave a mark on the employment brand for that organization for a long time to come. So um, what you bring up is harrowing, but it's also inspiring because of what you said is the expectation and some of the control is back with the employee. I interrupted you and you had a last take on that topic. What was it? Looking to the individuals. Everybody is an individual. You know, I'm, I'm trying not to show my age, but it's good. It's on a podcast <laughs> that, in fact, I grew up in a time where you didn't bring your work life in. That, and it's why women suffered a lot. And, you know, we have done so much in the world to bring women uh, where they belong in organizations. In 2020, we started to see all of that fall apart from the C-suite all the way down. So we need to find the humanity in our organizations and with our people in order to get the trust that we can move forward and get the results that organizations want by being a humane place for people who want to work there. Ron, how do employers communicate this commitment, this new trust? I mean, you know, arguably, it's a challenging environment, right? Like, how do they make it tangible? You know, I'll start, Matt, with... Um, employers recognize that uh, the right investments in people is critical for their business. For, for many employers, this is their greatest asset. And so the real question becomes, how do, how do we take a, a commitment demonstrating senior management interest in, in employee well-being and operationalize it? And a lot of employers are in a unique position. The good news is, despite these challenges, that employers are able to organize assets and deliver on a proposition that in certain instances is very hard for the individual to replicate on their own. So as a consequence, there have been a number of themes that have predominated how employers think of that employment relationship and where they make their investments. There are several areas where that's manifesting. One broadly is investments in well-being. That could be physical, mental health, which is a very hot issue today, social or financial. Investments and setting a standard around objectives for accelerating the opportunities with diversity, equity, inclusion. Re-engaging talent in ways that can range from where and how do you work to how do I provide support and development opportunities to how I design programs that make you more effective as a contributor, but also recognize the unique challenges that we've all seen emerge, particularly in the last couple of years. And then finally, there's an increasing interest on employers to invest in what we might call family-friendly benefits. Um, benefits and um, delivery support that helps the member or their family to be able to better respond to the challenges that are so well documented. And while initially that focus has been on the employee themselves, increasingly it's on the family, including children. So I'm glad you brought that up. You know, you're, you're sort of pointing out cohorts here. Um, we're in a place where trust is a little bit tenuous at the moment. People are still reeling from COVID. 
employers are thinking about family-friendly benefits. What about cohorts, targets for support? What do you do here, Ron? So there's been a a recognition that um, increasingly the family is a a key uh, indirect contributor to the success of the employee and ultimately the organization. And there has been a lot of data points that we've all read about where there are challenges increasingly with certain cohorts within the family. The, The adolescent cohort is a great example of this, where the mental health challenges certainly during COVID, and I might argue predating COVID, have accelerated in this country in a profound way. And so employers are beginning to recognize that it is as important to design and deliver on programs for that particular segment. But as employers have dug deeper, they are beginning to recognize that the clock really needs to start much earlier. And in fact, one such example of this is the higher level of prevalence that we have seen around neural development issues with children. It's an area that has not really been fully vetted among the typical employer yet, but one that screams out for a response given the data that we are seeing uh, for many organizations that are attempting to evaluate um, uh, the opportunities in this space. Um, what have employers been focused on as solutions so far, right? So you bring up family-friendly benefits, you bring up some mental health issues and developmental issues that could be supportive by the employer. How does an employment life cycle impact this? Where do you start? Deb, Ron, what do you think? So uh, let me uh, take a stab here. I think um, over the last decade, a lot of employers have been trying to diversify portfolios, if you will. This is coming from a framework where people started to give you know, benefits for the masses, if you will, So it's kind of new that we're looking at cohorts, but so terribly important. And so, you know, what I'm hearing a lot in people in the field now around what do we provide is that a lot of the employers are getting inundated with um, different kinds of tools. And the challenge is, though, picking tools that mean the most to the employee, not to check off a bunch of lists. We've covered this cohort, we've covered, but things that are going to give something to the employee, something that they can take with them, that something that connects them to their children when they can't be there, something that helps them to manage their lives and the work-life balance. And so some of these things are happening in real time. And Ron could probably speak more to this than I could about all of these new things coming at people. We, I think we have a responsibility to also help organizations and in turn their people understand how to utilize these things to improve things for their families and their lives. And that's hard. There is no one trick pony. And historically, we were always afraid to focus on one cohort. But, you know, as Ron so uh, well stated, you know, I saw a lot of suffering even as an executive coach working with women and focused on women. Um, you know, I remember one woman who had her twins who were eight months old in a uh, set of little Tupperware behind her while she was talking to me. And she was worried about those kids. And there's really no tools available. And for employers historically to provide backup centers and other things like that, that's not the answer to the connection with your child and ensuring that their health is being monitored and observed. 
So I think there's tools that have more meaning in this world or this plethora of everyone coming up with a new tool. There are some that are more meaningful than others. And I put it back to Ron who may have more experience in that space. Yeah, I would just uh, I would just add that um, there there is a lot that employers um, are challenged with today, cutting across you know these these broad themes that we we've alluded to earlier. I think where we're able to develop responses that that solve for multiple mandates, for example, well-being, DEI, family-friendly benefits, all at once, there's a greater recognition and willingness to engage around those solutions. And in the pediatric population, as an example, um, it's, been a, it's been a segment that has not, up only until recently, um, received the kind of focus and attention that, that the data would suggest. Ron, I could not agree more with that. Um, that's a great comment. Matt, I just wanna say something about um, Ron's comment about um, neurodevelopment and, um, you know, the, the, the challenges of uh, early development and, and identifying children early um, is, is a six decades long problem. Um, we know, for example, uh, that, you know, that the numbers are out there and I think everybody is aware of the, you know, the one in five, the one in six children have a neurodevelopmental delay. Um, I think what gets missed a lot of times is that only 3.7% of those children nationally are ever referred for early intervention and care. Oh my gosh. Um, so it's a, it's a stack number um, it, it hasn't budged in decades um, which is which is also stunning and I, and I think that's because um, and you'll know uh, this from um, our work together um, in uh, care redesign and consulting um, that it's very difficult to change uh, workflows and process in healthcare um, and so uh, while uh, healthcare has uh, changed over the years, um, uh, the, the, the way that we're managing um, these children, uh, the children that Ron referred to, uh, hasn't really changed. Um, he mentioned the, uh, the crisis in adolescent and teen mental health. And whenever I see that um, employers um, and researchers are kind of raising the red flag of, oh my goodness, this is happening. And yes, that's true. Uh, but if you're only addressing it um, in the early teen years, uh, you've missed the opportunity by a full decade. Uh, neuroregulation in children uh, begins at birth, um, and it is really established in the first two to three years of life. So we really need to start paying attention to infant mental health. So this is becoming a picture. And what I'm hearing from all three of these experts here is that there are significant topics that we need to be paying attention to when it comes to neurodevelopment, when it comes to the family and to family-friendly benefits, engagement with the employee, the commitment from the employer. But what I'm hearing here, and I'm going to steal a little bit from Deb here, um, there is a new deal emerging between employee and employer, and the story is changing. And in fact, this is all about storytelling. Deb, when you said that to all of us, when we were talking about all the things we've already talked about, what did you have in mind? Well, I think it's a, you know, and I, I am a fairly uh, positive person. I think it's an incredible opportunity to both create a better road for the future and in some ways improve what was in the past. 
Um, you know, I think there's so much, I won't get into this, but there's so much um, polarity in the world today. And I think in the employer world with the employee, it's also been that way in some ways. We talk employer, employee, and the real opportunity is to find the place in the middle um, that both see value. And I think the New Deal is about a trusted partnership and it means where there needs to be learning on both sides and feedback about things that matter to people. And, you know, we raise the issue of this being um, an issue for women, especially. I mean, in terms of uh, they're clearly parents are all caregivers, but for women dropping out, the stress level of women over this COVID period for concerns about their families. I mean, it was like for a while, in that 2020 period, it was like one in three people I knew were dropping out of the workforce. Very compelling, wonderful people. We have to change that because these kids, you know, that we're worried about as parents are the future of our world. And it has to start early. So what Ron said earlier, you know, we have this diversity program, we have these benefit programs. It, we need to find a systemic, integrated way to think about all of these together that support all. So when we're worried about our children and want to ensure we've got care for them when we're at work, that it's access to all, not just the people who can afford something, but how do we give act? That's inclusion. How do we provide things that help to fortify the future of our children going forward? And, you know, as people talked about, I grew up in a place where your children, you know, it's up to you to find some way to take care of them. I'm now finding there were benefits that didn't support that. I, I don't know if Ron, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, but in some ways benefits have always been about cost and they still are, but they're also about your trusted relationship and partnership with your employees. That's a shift. And I would just and, um, I would just no. add that there is um, a, again a great opportunity for employers to differentiate themselves. Um, many surveys have underscored that there that engagement levels are highly correlated to the perception of senior management interest in in my well being or the well being of my family. It, it's actually less about pay, though important. It's it's less about um, other factors that might be part and parcel of, of delivering on your normal workday. But evidence of senior management commitment to one's well-being consistently drives higher than average engagement levels. And, and just to build on Deb's framing of the challenges that we have seen, any evidence of that, and particularly in a creative way, uh, could go a long way in terms of, of, of a restatement of the partnership between employer and employee particularly in this environment, as there is sort of a reshuffling of the deck um, coming out of uh, what has been a, you know, a crazy two years of, of a pandemic. Yes, reshuffling of the deck is right. A crazy two years um, will be the understatement of the rest of most of our lives as we think about what we just endured. And you're pointing out that there are opportunities to engage here and to start building solutions and integrating solutions. And therein steps Linda once again. Linda, you've got something in mind. You've built something for this. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I um, I created uh, Laura Street. 
And uh, I used to think about Loristry. I used to tell people, I just want this to be the most uh, beautiful baby book. Um, but it's, it's really just so much more than that. It is uh, what I call, you know, the world's most important life story book. And every baby um, has just an extraordinary life story to tell. And um, our mission and our goal is to help parents tell that story to help them communicate um, with people. We're asking so much of parents these days. They're remote, um, they're, they're taking on so much. Um, you, there's not always uh, easy access. I heard a sh um, on NPR today, they did a fantastic show about RSV um, and about how you know, community hospitals have shut down uh, their pediatric departments uh, to you know, replace them with more lucrative uh, adult beds. Um, so families are struggling. They're struggling for access. They're struggling for care. Um, and um, when when I think about the way Loristry was designed, um, I am a nurse at heart. First and foremost, I'm a nurse. And um, I think really great nurses uh, do a really good job of being able to take extremely complex data um, and then creating a story about that data to convey to a clinician partner, such as a physician, um, calling them, you know, because physicians aren't at the bedside, you know, 24-7, the nurses are, um, helping them understand uh, what we're seeing through data, um, and then helping come up with uh, a conversation and a plan with the family for next steps. So um, Loristry um, really is um, a, a tool for parents. It's, it's a way to um, communicate with clarity and with data because we're living in a data-driven world. Um, it's not intended to uh, take the place of a physician uh, or of a clinical encounter, but it is intended to both engage and empower a parent with their own observations. So we're going to get into this, I think, in another show because there's just so much to it. But before we end, how'd you come up with that name and what was... What was your story that influenced you to take the effort to build this? My my uh, goal with Loristry has been, um, I, you know, people might look at this and say, oh, this is, you know, something that just popped up overnight. Um, Loristry has been, uh, in fact, a couple of decades in the making. I experienced um, challenges getting uh, health care for my own youngest daughter um, in the mid-90s. Um, I um, was on a three years long journey with her um, to, to get answers. And I was a person with a clinical background um, and uh, access to uh, immediate information uh, with the doctors and the nurses that I worked with, but I still kind of got caught into the grind that all families experience now about how you get access to good care. Um, I think my proudest moment was that I uh, successfully um, prevailed in a, um, a civil rights case that um, I filed with five other parents using data um, to help change uh, the way our children uh, got early intervention. Um, and um, when this happened to my family a second time um, in 2009, um, I had the idea for this, for this company. And it took a really long time for me to raise um, the money. Like a lot of women entrepreneurs, uh, the doors were closed. Loristry is a name of my own creation. It's a word that reflects, I think, um, the heart of human storytelling. Lore is a story passed down through generations and contains content that we can relate to in some way. And the word lore uh, in French uh, means gold. So loristry is a precious story of a life. 
Um, you know, Loristry helps a parent create a timeline for their child that includes family history before them. It creates the current narrative of the child in real time. And then it serves as this extraordinary gift for future generations in a family. You have a wonderful story. The wonderful thing about all three of you is there's this technical expertise combined with emotional attunement. And I don't know of a story that's more emotionally um, influential uh, for anyone to be a part of that can drive a goal or, you know, the horizon of care for HR than the mother-child relationship. Uh, we're going to cover more in another episode. Um, I am very grateful for the guests that I've had on today. Uh, Deb, Ron, thank you very much for joining us. That was an honor and privilege. Thank you, Matt. And, you know, most of my shows before I end, I always ask for a closing moment. In episode two, I'm going to ask all three of you for your summary takeaway over the series that we're working on here for today since linda's work is really what's brought together the the four of us i'm going to defer that to linda and i'm going to ask you this linda and i didn't tell you before the call i would (laughs) but uh if there was one soundbite connected to you from today's episode and no one heard anything else all they heard was the following soundbite from Linda regarding this episode. What would you want them to hear regarding the topics and where we're headed with what you've built? Every baby has a story to tell. And how are you telling your baby's story? This has been Matt Sabolsky with the Digital Health Roundtable. Join us next time for another excellent episode. See you then.